Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And it is a new month. Today is March 1st when this episode is airing. And I did a little digging to find a story that had a connection to March 1st. And I think I found one. And it has to do with some of the history of Branch County. So today I'm going to be using a reference that I found on some early history of the formation of Branch County. And it should be quite interesting of some of the early pioneer history that uh, is referred to in this write-up. So come along and join me, and let's venture on down to Branch County, Michigan. So the reference I am going to be referring to today is the Illustrated Atlas and Columbian Souvenir of Branch County, Michigan, which was published in Fort Wayne, Indiana by the Atlas Publishing Company in 1894. And it includes not only a map and uh, descriptions of the county of the time, but it also has an interesting two or three page write-up on the history and origin of Branch County. And it's got some interesting connections to Southwest Michigan as well. So the beginning of the write-up starts with the territorial government. It says the territorial government of Michigan was ordained in 1805 and the territory was admitted into the union as a state in 1837. On the 29th day of October 1829, the Legislative Council of Michigan passed an act forming the county of Branch and at the same time 12 other counties comprising together a large portion of of southern Michigan. Now that has always been the premise of this podcast, which is Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past, concentrating on that group of 12 to 14 counties that were all organized around the same time. Now this reference goes on to say that this was the first year of the administration of Andrew Jackson, and John Branch of North Carolina was his secretary of the Navy, and for him, the county of Branch was named. Now, the counties of Berrien, Barry, Eaton, and Ingram were also named for members of the cabinet of Andrew Jackson. And also Jackson County was named for the president himself. Van Buren County was named for the vice president in his administration, Martin Van Buren. And also Cass and Calhoun counties, who were named after Lewis Cass and John C. Calhoun, who were distinguished democratic statesman and Lewis Cass was the second territorial governor of the state of Michigan and he later joined the Andrew Jackson cabinet in his uh, second administration. Now in this first batch of counties three of them did not get named for people in the cabinet. Uh, Kalamazoo for example was named after a Native American name assigned to a local river. Uh, St. Joseph was also named from the St. Joseph River as well as the St. Joseph name that had been assigned to that region by the French. And for that reason, St. Joseph is probably the oldest name associated with all of the counties in southwest Michigan. Uh, Another county that was named separately from this line of thinking was Hillsdale County, and it was named after the hills and dales of the terrain of that county. So those are just a few examples 
of ones that were named in that first batch of counties that were not specifically connected to the Andrew Jackson administration. Now, the next paragraph in this article is quite interesting, and it can be a bit confusing if you're not entirely familiar with the material, but I'll go ahead and read it to you, and then I'll try to explain what they're talking about here. It says, the formation of the county must be distinguished from its organization. The act of the council segregated these portions of the territory and indicated that they were of a proper extent and form for counties. The organization did not necessarily, nor in fact in most instances, follow for a considerable time. They did not contain a sufficient number of inhabitants and in other respects were not in a condition for organization. Six days later, on November 4th, two of the numbers, St. Joseph and Cass, were organized by an act of the Legislative Council and Branch, Kalamazoo, Barry, and Eaton counties together within an immense uncut and unoccupied tract extending nearly to the Strait of Mackinac were attached to St. Joseph County. That county may appropriately be called the Mother of Counties. So the counties were organized roughly into territorial lines from the first survey that was done around 1830s. And that's what they called organizing the counties, but the, or more exactly, the rough formation of the counties. The official organizing of the counties came when they started drafting and putting together their own form of government policies within these county lines as required by the legislature. So the next day, on November 5th, the council passed an act forming several new townships of great extent. And so actually, what I forgot to mention there was that they organized these counties and then the rest of the territory, almost all the way up to the Straits of Mackinac, were roughly thrown into St. Joseph County. And it was kind of like, we have to name it something and then we'll organize that and separate it into counties later on. So St. Joseph, for a very brief period of time, was a very massive amount of territory in the organizing of Southwest Michigan. And this act that they passed on November 5th in the fifth section of the act, it stated that the counties of Branch, Calhoun, Eaton, and all the country lying north of the county of Eaton, which are attached and form a part of the county of St. Joseph, shall form a township of the name of Green, and the first township meeting shall be held at the home of Jabez Bronson in said township. So it might be difficult in such an immense township to find the house of Jabez Bronson, but in 1829 there were so few inhabitants that although they lived pretty far apart, everybody generally knew where everyone lived. And the fact that Jabe Bronson, who, which is how people knew him and what he was called, they all knew where he lived. And so he lived in a log tavern on the Bronson Prairie in Branch County. So Branch County has a fairly big significance because the counties were organized and basically sectioned off, but the townships were not broken down as they are today. And they just were labeled as one massive township that overlapped all of these counties in space initially. And as populations grew, then they broke up the townships within each county as each county government saw fit. And so this is just a very interesting time in 1829 as things are getting organized and formed and how they went about doing it. And Jabe Bronson's house, which was a roughly a log cabin, 
was in the middle of Branch County on the prairie. So the first meeting that was held in the Green Township, which had been organized in June of 1830, was held in the log cabin of Jabez Bronson. And it was the seat of government, and he was the landlord of the township, dispensing justice and literature as well as food and fodder at this meeting. And he was the first justice of the peace of the county appointed by the governor. And he was also the first postmaster receiving his appointment from President Jackson. And the amount of taxes paid in the entirety of Branch County that first year in 1830 was collected by John G. Richardson, who was the tax collector, and he turned the money over to the supervisor, whose name was Seth Dunham, and the amount collected was $7.36. How about that for a county tax bill? And in the summer of 1830, the governor appointed three commissioners to locate the county seat of Branch County. Abram Bolton owned the land adjoining and lying east of the Coldwater River and north of the Chicago Road. And he satisfied the commissioners that his location was the right place for the county seat, and they stuck the stake for the county buildings in his land. And this location of the county seat failed, however, as the proceedings were voided out because the commissioners had neglected to take the oath of office as required by the governor. So the next year, a new batch of commissioners was appointed under a new act of March 4th of that year. And they, of course, took the oath of office this time. And then they came upon the ground of Mr. Abram Bolton, who again attempted to convince them of the advantages of his property. But by this time, other people in the area were being persuasive about where to locate the county seat, and the stake was stuck in the forests on the west side of the branch of the Coldwater River near the present area of Coldwater as we find it today. So that's just a little interesting forgotten story about how things got placed in Branch County and the county seat located uh, because of the little nuances of the commissioners omitting taking the oath of office, and so they had to redo everything the following year with a new group of commissioners, and the placement of the county changed because more people became interested in providing the location of it. Now, by 1832, there were probably 60 voters within the limits of the county, according to this article, and the settlers, however, thought there were enough inhabitants to justify the division of the territory of the county into two townships. So accordingly, on the 29th of June, 1832, a legislative act was procured which divided the county into two equal parts by north and south line. And the eastern half was named the Township of Coldwater, and the act provided that the first election should be held at the home of Jabez Bronson. And a few years later, the name of Prairie River was exchanged for that name of Bronson. Now, the county of Branch was officially formed in October of 1829, but it took about four years for the people living in the county to move on to the matter of the county organization, which I think was common in those early formed counties, that they took anywhere from uh, three to eight years to get formed and organized in their county form of government. And in Branch County, there were approximately about 300 inhabitants, and about 70 of them were voters at that time, 
when they began the county organization. And accordingly, on the, an act by the Legislative Council was obtained in February of 1833 to take effect March 1st, the following month, and the Branch County therefore became legal on the first day of March, 1833, and that is the anniversary of today when this podcast episode is released. And that was kind of why I wanted to tell this story today. So Branch County is officially 191 years old today. So they probably got a big anniversary coming up in about nine years when they hit their 200 mark. So the first election for the county was held the next month after the organization went through, and William McCarty was chosen for the sheriff. Wales Adam was chosen as the clerk, and Seth Dunham was the treasurer and the register of deeds, and Peter Martin was appointed as the probate judge by the governor. The first deed that was recorded in the county was made by John Allen to Seth Dunham, and the register conveyed an undivided portion of the Black Hawk Mill property. The first mortgage that was recorded was made by James Stewart of Ypsilanti to Abram Bolton of Napoleon, Jackson County, to secure the payment of $1,200. This mortgage covered the tract of land in which Mr. Bolton had hoped to locate the county seat and build a city on. The first certificate of marriage recorded was set forth by Robert J. Cross, who was the Justice of the Peace, on the 14th day of July, 1833, and he married Alan Stoddard of Detroit to Mary Estlau of Branch County. And the second certificate of marriage in the same county was done by Clerk Wales Adams um, when he married Polly Waterman of Prairie River Township. And the first recorded marriage by a minister of the gospel was by Bishop Chase on Christmas Day in 1834 in the presence of the Congregational Assembled for Christian Worship. So that's interesting that they note that here in this same article. And then in less than 10 years from the recording of the first certificate, there is a record of 224 certificates. And as the territorial law in respect to recording marriage certificates was more than lax than subsequent laws, there was an, a new level of many marriages for which there were no record. And considering the number of inhabitants, the early settlers must have been kindly disposed to marrying and giving in marriage, is what it writes here. So, kind of interesting. And consequently, on October 26, 1843... Ten years after the first recorded marriage, the first divorce was granted in the county, in case you're interested. And the parties were David M. Clark against Hannah Clark. And the solicitors were the for the complainant were a firm called Fuller and Gilbert. And the wife made no defense. So I guess the man filed for divorce against his wife. But in the early days, marriages were plenty and the divorces were few. As time went on, divorces increased as can be expected with any new area being organized, I suppose, as times change. Moving on to some other information, prior to 1837, the courts for the county were held at the schoolhouse in Branch County, and the prisoners were kept at a jail over in St. Joseph County. And in the summer of the year 
1837, a log building two stories high and 30 feet square was built in Branch County, and it was called a jail, but only the lower part was used for that purpose, and the upper part was used as the courtroom. And this was the first and only public building in the county while the county seat remained at Branch. So remember, this county was pretty large because it included the roughed-out counties of all these other areas, and this was the seat of the area as the other counties were getting organized and forming their governments. So this was kind of the main government building in that area for quite a few years there early on in 1837. During 1837, this was the year of the first newspapers in the county of Branch that were published, and the oldest by a few weeks is the Michigan Star issued at Branch County, and the other was the Coldwater Observer published in Coldwater. And this was the year also of great inflation and wild speculation, and there was a lot of wildcat money abounding around the area. It was also called red dog money. And there were two banks of issue which were started in the county, and one in Branch and one in Coldwater, and they soon both collapsed. So this is kind of an interesting forgotten history because people were left with floods of worthless paper in their hands and basically being in the worst financial condition of their lives at that point because all their money had been given away and taken in this form of wildcat currency and they were left with nothing. And between 1837 and 1842, there was a lot of uh, debate and discussion about where to officially locate the county seat of Branch, and eventually they settled as the location being best in Coldwater in 1842. And around that time, the jail that they had built in 1837 was burned by a prisoner who had been confined there, and they eventually had to start sending prisoners of Branch County back over to St. Joseph County until a new structure was eventually built in Coldwater in 1846. And there was quite a struggle in building a courthouse after the jail had been built, and it took them seven years from the time they decided to place the county seat at Coldwater, and it eventually was completed in 1847. So the vote on this went back and forth on the contract of the building, and it didn't get first occupied until 1848. Now, the Southern Railroad was completed in Hillsdale in 1843, and that outlet to the markets of the East was a great benefit to the county of Branch. And the financial troubles which followed the disastrous speculative period in 1837 with all that wildcat banking, it prevented the extension of the railroad across the county until about 1851. And then the track was laid that year... And in March of 1852, the the railroad cars ran through all the way to Chicago. So it was a bit of a delay because of all that speculative wildcat banking period that kind of left a lot of the county in poverty when the the banks collapsed. But uh, this event of the railroad was one of the greatest rejoicing aspects of that period as it created a thoroughfare through the county from east to west, which brought a supply of new inhabitants as well as the best class of materials and things from New York and New England and other states in the east, and it added greatly to the prosperity of Branch County. 
as it did with many other counties in southwest Michigan as it completed its uh, establishment all the way to Chicago. And this prosperity in Branch County continued all the way up to the War of the Rebellion, also known as the American Civil War. And it's stated here that from the time the railroad opened in Branch County until the Civil War, which was a period of about 10 years, the population nearly doubled in Branch County and the wealth increased in a much larger proportion than ever seen in the history of the county. And so those 10 years were seen as a time that the dangers and the hardships of pioneer life were over and the wilderness was being more and more subdued and the county began to quote-unquote blossom like a rose. It was a period of happiness and contentment everywhere in the county as things began to really improve and prosper. And all of this was driven by the railroad. But it was all brought to a halt with the dark cloud of the Civil War, and this slowed down the prosperity as it did across the country. And in proportion, Branch County sent a lot of men off to the Civil War um, in comparison to, say, the size of other counties in the proportion of men that were sent. And it writes here, the war record of Branch County is a proud one. Her citizen soldiers are sleeping in the soil of every southern state and every town and rural cemetery in the county marks their resting places. Memorial Day since that war has been the great occasion of the county. It may be safely said that nowhere else has the day been so constantly observed and reverenced with so much sincere affection and devotion. The generations that lament the fallen heroes are fast passing away, but the living for all time will never cease to honor them. Remember, this was written in 1894, so it was looking back uh, several years later. Following the close of the American Civil War, large areas of uncultivated land had been improved and added to the village of the county, and in driving through the county, fine schoolhouses had been built and dwellings and barns, and they were constantly rising to the vision of the travelers as they went through. And the city of Coldwater and the villages of the county had seen a wholesome growth even in the aftermath of the war, and nowhere more charming places of residence could be found. And in these handsome Buildings among them were churches that had been built and public libraries and school buildings of beauty and comfort that had been erected. The county devoted mainly to agriculture at that point, and there were several granges of farmers, meetings with their wives and their daughters and sons, and their schools of instructions about agriculture propagated these organized granges that were around during that time, and the high cultivation of the soil only surpassed by the higher cultivation of the mind. So education was a big priority, and that was brought in by the connection to New England and New York via the railroad. And then it goes on to describe that the county, in addition to numerous lakes, is well watered by the St. Joseph River in the north and the Coldwater River and its branches in the south and middle portions and many creeks and other parts. The forests were black walnut, oak, maple, beech, elm, ash, cherry, whitewood, and other varieties 
of wood of good size and of the finest quality. In the progress of cultivation, most of the timber has disappeared, but the county is still well wooded and the lakes and streams well stocked with fish. The climate is healthful and its soil rich, readily cultivated and highly productive of a great variety of grains and fruits. And there's some other interesting things noted here. The first school in Branch County and the first between Lenawa County and White Pigeon was taught in a log tenement on the Bronson Prairie in the winter of 1830 and 1831 by Columbia Lancaster. And Mr. Lancaster afterwards became an able lawyer in the county, and he practiced law over at White Pigeon, and he built the first log house at Centerville in 1831. And he was the president of the St. Joseph's County Bank and a member of the legislature in 1838. He eventually went on to Oregon in 1845 and was a delegate in Congress from that territory in 1856 and prominently identified with the interest of that section of the Pacific Coast thereafter. So that's an interesting story about one individual that had not only a major impact on Branch County, but also in the Oregon Territory. Following that time period, schoolhouses were built in other areas of the county. One was built at Waterhouse Corners in 1836. There was one built in Butler, Matson, California, and Noble in 1838, and in Ovid Township in 1842, and in Quincy in 1837. And the first school in Quincy was established through the enterprise of Squire Agler and Dr. Agler, was one of the first pupils. In 1837, the first schoolhouse was built in Union City, and then in Allegancy in 1838, and in Gilead and Sherwood in 1836, and Batavia in 1835. So those are some of the establishment of the respective schoolhouses in those portions of Branch County. The first building in Coldwater that was a school was a rude log structure located on the north side of the Chicago Road, a little east of the present residence of Mr. Glessner, and it was built in 1833 or 1834. And finally, as a note, because I go into the story of the State Public School for Dependent Children, which was organized and built in Coldwater in 1871. I cover the background a little bit because it relates to a story that I tell in my book, Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, and it is a central piece of one of the true crime stories in my new book coming out. So that was the state public school for dependent children that was organized and established by the state in Coldwater in 1871. And that was, uh, the whole story of that is in my new book, but that is one of the, the major schools that had an impact on Coldwater and People were sending their children or children that basically were orphans or uh, indigent and didn't have financial support because their parents were either in severe poverty or jail or unable to care for them in some way. And so these children were sent to the state public school over in Coldwater. So it's very interesting history. And I did a little research on that and included the background of that in my upcoming book. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history, looking at some of the early formation and stories of Branch County from this Atlas guide that was published in 1894. I wanted to remind everybody that 
beginning next week, the podcast will be airing on Wednesday during the week, and there will not be a Friday episode. So I'm going to be switching to two episodes a week. It'll be coming out on Sunday and Wednesday. Now, this coming Sunday, you really want to tune in because I just did my first interview of the year with author Tobin Book, and it was a lot of fun talking to him. He's a true crime author that has written about 17 books and he's got three coming out this year. So fascinating conversation with him. And I, I know that you're going to enjoy it, especially if you'd like to hear a little bit about true crime stories, because uh, he's quite a knowledgeable individual and his books are, are fascinating and enticing. So I hope that you will tune in on Sunday and hear that interview. And just quickly mentioning my new book, this is March now, so I will be speaking uh, a lot this month around uh, Southwest Michigan. Uh, my first speaking date officially on my book tour is happening at Willard Library on Thursday evening at 6 p.m. on March 14th. And then I will be for two days at the Kalamazoo Living History Show. That's on March 16th and 17th. And then the following week on Tuesday, March 19th, I will be at the Colon Township Library. And that is an evening presentation at 6 p.m. And I'll be talking about one of the stories there at Colon Township Library. And then the Helen Warner branch of the Willard Library, I'll be speaking Saturday morning, March 23rd at 10 a.m. And that is located at 36 Mingus Creek Place in Battle Creek. And then later that afternoon, I'll be over in Marshall that same day on Saturday, March 23rd at 2 p.m. at New Story Community Books, doing a little presentation for them and helping them sell some books there. And then the following day on Sunday, March 24th, I'll be at 2 p.m. over in Albion at Sterling Books and Brew. So those are the dates that I have scheduled right now that are open to the public. I'm doing a couple of other speaking engagements in March to a couple of private groups. And I realize not everybody's going to know where the Willard Library is or where some of these other locations are that I mentioned. So check out michaeldelaware.com and click on the calendar. I've got the full addresses, dates, times, and all of that information available there on my website. But um, that's my lineup for March. I mean, obviously the book is officially available for sale on March 11th. And I would encourage you, if you're going to wait until then, to buy it online at Amazon or whatever, you can do that. But please uh, make an effort to leave a review and go back on there and tell people what you thought of the book. And hopefully you'll give it five stars, obviously. But uh, that will always help my sales, especially if the reviews hit within the first couple of weeks and you make your purchase within the first couple of weeks of the book's release, it will drive up the book in the rankings on Amazon and make it available to a lot more people searching for new books in the history category. And wouldn't it be wonderful if a little old guy like myself got a top 10 book in the history category on Amazon? Uh, I can only hope and dream, but that uh, is not outside the realm of possibility if we, uh, we all get out there and make it happen. So... Anyway, so that's uh, what I've got going on. If you want to see a full calendar list of what I've got coming up in March, April, and May, I've added a few more dates since I last mentioned this. You can go to my website at michaeldelaware.com and check out my calendar. 
You can also uh, order a copy of the book there if you want to get an early advanced copy before March 11th. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. And I hope to hear from you very soon on either Facebook or at one of these upcoming events. You can also reach out to me at Instagram. Um, So until then, thanks for listening. 